Welcome to A Piece of Me. I'm Aviva Breda. This podcast will explore all of the pieces that make up who we are and all of the things that make us special, unique, and different. And we're going to debunk the just that we have in our lives. You're just this. You're just that. You're not just anything. I'll start. Here's a piece of me. Hi, hi, hi. Welcome to today's episode. I am so excited and thrilled to have with me my first ever guest, Rifki Itzkowitz. She is the founder and owner of Impact Fashion NYC, which is a size-inclusive, modest fashion brand, as well as the Be Impactful podcast. Uh, Rifki was so helpful to me in so many ways. She had me as a guest on her podcast. It was my first podcast appearance, and it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. She has coached me uh, into the podcasting world with, with so much insight, and she has welcomed me with open arms, never once saying, you know, trying to protect a space that she occupies, but, you know, welcoming me. And um, I really look up to her as a mentor. And I am just so, so excited to have her here. And without further ado, let's meet Rifki. Hi, Rifki. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Aviva. I'm honored to be here. This is really exciting having you as my very first guest. And um, bear with me because I'm new at this. So here we go. You're already doing fantastic. (laughs) Don't worry about it. Thank you. Um, Okay. A way for our listeners to get to know a little bit more about you and for us to get to know a little bit, each other a little bit better. I'm going to share a little piece of me that's different, unique, and maybe unexpected. Here we go. I love oranges and bananas, but I hate, hate anything orange or banana flavored. Candy cake, muffins. I can't even peel an orange without wearing gloves. Wow. Yeah. It's intense. It's really intense. And everyone makes fun of me because I love those two things, but I cannot eat anything flavored like that. So wait, so you like actual oranges, but not like orange candies, no orange candies. Like if I'm ever eating a bag of gummies or something, the oranges are always left to the bottom, no matter what. I don't think I've ever heard of anyone who has something like that. That is awesome. Weirdly enough, I love bananas. I will never eat banana bread, banana cake, banana muffins, anything banana flavored, banana ice cream. My kids love banana Laffy Taffies, vile and disgusting. Okay. So I love bananas also. Huge fan of bananas. And I like anything that has natural banana flavor in it, like banana bread, banana muffin with like actual smashed bananas in it. I'm all for it. I love it. My first stage of quarantine was the banana bread making phase (laughs) and I was in it very intensely, Um, but I can't do anything artificially banana. So let's, so tell us something, you know, a tasty little nugget about you that's different and unique Mm. and maybe, and maybe other people certainly won't know, but don't have. Sir, oh, let me think for a second. Something that is about me that is a little bit unique. Oh, I'm totally blanking right now. Which, <laughs> and I pride myself on being a unique individual. <laughs> and yet now I can't think of a single thing. Well, I will tell you something that happened in my life recently that's very exciting. Okay. I live in an apartment in Kew Garden Hills, which is yeah. a neighborhood in Queens. Um, and when I was moving into my apartment when I got married about three years ago, it's... Um, 
it was not really standard that apartments had washing had washer dryers. Um, it was this is this is literally the most exciting thing happening in my life right now. There, it was not standard that apartments had washer dryers. So it was just kind of like accepted that when you're looking for an apartment, if it happened to have a washing machine in it, then that was like a major major bonus. And we actually almost took an apartment that was terrible in every other way, except that it had a washing machine. Totally and now recently, it. over the past three years, it's become a little bit more standard. So for the past three years, I've been taking my laundry to my mom's house. Wow. to do it which was like this major event um it was like we did laundry like once every two and a half weeks and we took mm-hmm. all of our clothes and we put them into a suitcase and then like also for like those that day we didn't really have clothes and we were just yeah. in our pajamas and then like we got it over there it was like this whole major thing yeah and recently I convinced my landlord to allow me to put in a washing machine wow so when we're recording this, this is only the third day that I have the washing machine. Oh my God. And I, when I woke up the first morning and I saw it, it's in my kitchen, like next to my sink. And when I saw it, I actually in my head said, good morning, washing machine. (laughs) And then went on with my day. Because it was the most exciting thing. Because also this is just going to make everything so much more convenient and and everything. So I guess my interesting fact is that occasionally I say good morning to appliances. That's amazing. Sometimes it happens. So yeah, that's. (laughs) Listen, I feel that I feel the same way about my coffee machine. So I totally yes, exactly. But it it was it was so unconscious. Like it wasn't something. (laughs) It wasn't like oh, this is so fantastic. We have a washing machine now. It was literally just like in my head. I was like oh, look the sun. Good morning, washing machine. Like it was just. It was just a natural thing that happened inside my head. And, and let me tell you, it was a great feeling. It was a really, really great feeling. (laughs) That's great. That is so great. Okay. So let's, let's kind of dive in a little bit and find out a little bit more about you. So as I mentioned in the intro, um, Rifki has a size inclusive, modest fashion brand. Is that correct? Is that That correct? Impact fashion. Yeah, that's exactly how I would describe it. Okay, awesome. Impact fashion NYC. Rifki, how long have you been designing and producing for this line? So it's, it's, it's the kind of thing that happens on its own in but also not at all if and I'll tell you what I mean by that. I've been sewing since I'm 10. Um, I've always and I've been interested in fashion literally since before I can remember. Um, I come from a very fashion focused family. Um, both of my grandmothers are um, well, one was and one is um, a fantastic dressers, both in their own ways. My my father's mother, who I called Oma, um, was this European lady like and that's the best way that I could think to describe her she was always a lady she was always in the way that she behaved even when you could tell that she was very uncomfortable Um, or she was very always just always very dignified and always wearing these gorgeous suits and different patterns and all of that and um, my mother's mother my Bobby um, is someone who appreciates fit and fabric and just the way that clothing is constructed I don't I, like she knows how to sew, but she never really, like, I don't remember her as someone sewing clothes for me or anything like that, yeah. like as a kid, because that just wasn't what she did. But going shopping with Bobby was also like an event. It was something that you, it was something that you did. If, if you, if Bobby liked something on you, that meant that you, it looked the most fantastic that it possibly could. Cause she always had, and still has these super high standards that were, um, that but but the, not not to I'm making it sound like she's some kind of like witch woman not at all in the most <laughs> loving way possible right, but she also course. is not going to tell you if she if she likes it if she doesn't right. so she so from from both of my grandmothers I had this really 
just intense appreciation for fashion from from before it's like literally and my entire family is like that all of my cousins and everyone we're all like that we're just all very into um we're just all very into clothes and when I was around 10 my mom was going to throw out a pillowcase because it was disgusting and ratty and gross and needed to be thrown out and my my oma who, um, you know, a Holocaust survivor and very much from that mentality was horrified that she was going to throw out something Mm -hmm. uh, because you don't throw out anything. And she, and my mom was like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? It literally has holes in it. It's disgusting. Like what, what is, what is supposed to happen here? Um, And my Oma said, give it to me. I'll teach Rifki how to sew with it. And that's exactly what she did. Um, We took this pillowcase and we made clothes for my American Girl doll. And we did it together. We did it on, you know, on her old Elna sewing machine. They do not make, they do not make these machines anymore. They are solid. Oh, it's an old, I believe it's a German brand. I'm not, oh no, it's a Swiss brand. Sorry. It's a Swiss brand. They are, it's Elna, E-L-N-A. They're full metal machines. Wow. So these, like the inner and outer workings are full metal. And then it has this like um, briefcase kind of thing that encases it. And the briefcase of it opened into a table that you could work on wow and I'm telling you this thing must weigh like at least 50 pounds it's yeah. this enormous thing I still have it um and that's the machine that I learned to sew on so my Oma taught me how to sew using that machine I would go she lived in on the Upper West Side so I used to go to her house I would spend Shabbos there and Friday up until the second before Shabbos well in the morning when I, I would go there after school she would have already done a lot of the shopping and we would and we would cook Shabbos together mm-hmm. and then do um like and then right up until the second we had to let to like candles we would sew we'd have a great Shabbos together we would just hang out just the two of us and then Matzah Shabbos we would start again and we yeah. would and we would sew all through the night and then my parents would come pick me up Sunday morning um <laughs> and it's and it, like that's it was the best the best time the best memories it was it was really fantastic and that's how I learned how to sew so I did it kind of, and obviously you're not making anything great at 10, right. um, but I was making stuff that was good enough for my dolls right. um, and that I was playing around with for my, you know, with my dolls. Uh, by the time I was about 13, 14, I was making stuff that was good enough to be Shabbos clothes in camp. Okay, you know, that it. category yeah. of stuff. Definitely. You know what I mean? Not yeah. great. Not great. Wearable. I was covered, right. but like, you know, not totally lined up. So Shabbos closing camp, you know? Perfect. So, so we would spend a, a bunch of months making my camp Shabbos wardrobe, mm-hmm. um, you know, which would be, you know, a couple of skirts, a couple of tops, that kind of thing. Mostly we did mostly skirts. Actually. I think we did a couple of dresses together because skirts are the easiest. That's what everyone starts right. with. Um, so, you know, I, I was doing that level. And then, um, as I got older, once I, once I hit, you know, seventh or eighth grade or so, um, my grandmother, my Oma was already not doing so well. Um, and she, she was not, she was never really a well woman. Um, and, um, and as her situation deteriorated, um, I kind of took it up on my own. So I would, I would be sketching a lot. I would be, um, I would be designing a lot. I would be kind of piecing things together as I wanted. My mom would take me to fabric stores. I would pick out things. I would buy the commercial patterns and, you know, try to make the instructions work and commercial sewing pattern instructions, by the way, are terrible. They're very confusing and they're only, and they're written for someone who like actually knows what they're doing in mind. And I, and I had an idea of what I was doing, but I definitely wasn't at the at like that level. But if you do it enough times, then you get a feel for how things are supposed to be constructed. And, 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 it, and, and you keep, and you keep going through it. Um, so once I was already in high school, that was when I really, really picked it up. Uh, my Oma passed away the summer between ninth and 10th grade. Mm-hmm. So, and it was kind of around then that I really picked it up and I really started taking it seriously. Before then it had been kind of a hobby. And that was when I started thinking like, oh, maybe this could be my job. 
Maybe this could be like, this was the thing that I really like to do. Maybe I'll be some kind of fashion designer. I was obsessed with Project Runway. I still kind of am. Heidi and Tin version was much better. And I'm not the biggest fan of making the cut, but it's fine. We'll make it work. Um, But I like I I just had a feel for it. Um, And and that was when I started had these inklings in my head that like maybe this would be something that I could do. I remember actually sitting with a bunch of my friends in high school. We must have been in, I want to say probably around 11th grade. And we were we used to eat lunch in the hallways, just like sitting in front of our lockers on the floor. And we and we were hanging out there. We were all kind of talking about what we were going to be in. and one of my friends was like, I'm going to be, a, I'm going to be a doctor. And she actually is almost going to be a doctor. Wow. Now. Um, she's graduating soon. And, um, and another one was saying that she wanted, that she wanted to be something else. And, um, and I said, you know what, I think I'm going to win. I think I'm going to win a Tony for costume design. That's what I want to do. Like, this is, this is, I want to go into costume design. I want to do a Broadway show. Like, this is what I want to do. Wow. Obviously that's probably not going to happen at this point. I mean, who knows, but, um, I, but I was really thinking about it in those terms. And while I was in high school, I was also taking a lot of classes. Um, FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology here in New York, has uh, what they call their pre-college program. Okay. It's essentially classes for high school students that are given over the weekends um, that are meant to prepare you to be able to submit a portfolio to attend the school. So I started taking their pattern making classes in high school. And I would do that on Sundays. And I remember my parents made me take the express bus from Queens into the city because the subways on Sunday morning are like, I was, I was like 15. The subways on Sunday morning are basically empty and they were scared. So they they said, you're taking the express bus, which stops like right by my parents' house. So that's what I did. I took the express bus. um, And I also, so I started taking these weekend classes and I also started taking night classes there. So there would be sometimes when I would, um, Uh, when in the summer, actually, instead of going to camp starting in like 10th or 11th grade, I would take these, um, the, they would have these like three week programs that were like all day you'd, um, and they would, and you would come out with like a real skill. So I did pattern making classes there. I did some construction classes there, you know, actually sewing stuff. I also did some fashion art classes there, which I hated and I'm still not really great at. And I still, I don't know, I'm not, I don't like sketching it. I'd much rather have something that I can like hold, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, there's people, yeah. there are people who are fantastic fashion illustrators yeah. and they can make these beautiful pictures and they really are there. I wish I could do it, mm-hmm. but it doesn't really come so naturally to me. And also I'd much rather I don't want to spend 10 hours on a picture. I want to spend 10 hours on a dress that I can I wear that. and use and see and hold and, and all of that. So that was all throughout high school. And I you did really, that. You really have yeah. a lot of formal training. Oh yeah. And it was important to me to have formal yeah. training. Um, it was important to me uh, because I kind of had this, I kind of knew that going into fashion was not exactly a conventional job. Right. Um, and that it was not exactly, you know, there's no you don't have to like, you could go to fashion school. I did not go to an official fashion school. My degree is from Queens College. Um, I have a lot of training from FIT, but it's, but my, the way that I say it is that my degree is from Queens College and my education is from FIT. Right. Um, right. And, and, you know, it's not like if you're becoming a doctor, then you do, you know, you get, you get the BA in biology and then you go to the medical school and then you become like, it's just not like that. And I kind of had this feeling that because I knew that it wasn't going to be like that. And because I had this feeling that I was probably going to need to start my own company, I wanted to have as much formal education as possible. And also, I just wanted to get really good at it. I wanted to be something like my dream is to be able to just sit at a sewing machine and create clothes all day. That is, that is my ideal situation. I'm not quite there yet because I do have to run the company. Um, but eventually we'll get there. And for (laughs) me, it was, you know, I had, I did all of this formal training. I did, um, did this all throughout high school when I was in seminary, when I took my gap year in Israel, Mm -hmm. I, um, through a whole crazy story, I ended up getting connected with this woman named Hannah Studley, who uh, does gown rentals, does bridal gown rentals oh, out wow. of her apartment in Nachal Oat. And I'm, I'm talking about like her entire apartment could probably fit 
inside my New York city apartment, this right. tiny, tiny apartment. And, um, and she had, I remember she had these shelves in the ceiling where she would like store the dresses. So she would have this catalog. You could look through the catalog, tell her which one you wanted to try on. And from like a hole in the wall, literally she would <laughs> she unearth this enormous wedding gown that you could try on. So I started apprenticing with her. She gave lessons. I took, I took, um, I took her lessons. The lessons that she gave were mostly beginner focused right. and she could see that I wasn't a beginner. So what she said to me was, you know, listen, she basically gave me a couple of tests and said, okay, listen, you're at this and this stage. You're really not at a lesson stage. You're at an apprentice stage. So do you want to work with me? Wow. And I was like, yeah, I definitely, I definitely want to work with you. So I started, what she did was that the way that her business model worked was that she only did bridal and people would occasionally come to her for bridal party, you know, the mother, the sister, the, you know, the mother-in-law, that kind of thing. And so what she would do is that when, um, when, once I was working with her, um, I would assist her on her bridal gowns. So like bridal gowns, a lot of times have, you know, beading that takes a, a ton of man hours just to do all that by hand. So I would take some of that work off of her hands. Um, and I would actually bring it with me back to my seminary and do it in class. Cause I wasn't taking college credit. So I didn't really like the classes were I was just there to listen and learn. I wasn't really right. there to take the test. Um, and so I would just be in the back of a classroom with a bridal gown on like across three desks you know, beating the hem or whatever it was that needed to be done. That sounds like uh, the best way to be in seminary to kind of it, just be there to listen and learn and not be so worried about the tests. Or the it was, the, it was yeah. fantastic. Nice. I will say that there were some teachers who appreciated it less than others. Understand. And, yeah. Right. But also listen, and I said to them, I understand you need to be running a classroom and I get that this is not your ideal situation. If you right. want to kick me out, kick me out. Right. That's fine. If you want to kick me out, kick me out. Also, like if, if you, fail me, you know, if I'm, and I was doing okay on the test. I wasn't, I definitely wasn't doing my best. It was like, and if you need to fail me, fail me. I don't care. Me too. Right. Right. Like if I understand that there are consequences to this action that I am taking right now. Mm -hmm. So you do what you do with that information, whatever you want to do. If you don't want me to, if you don't want this wedding dress here, that's fine. But don't think that you're getting the wedding dress me without the wedding dress because this has to get done. So if I do it in my dorm room or if I do it in your classroom, it doesn't really make a difference to me. So you tell me, I kind of think of it now. I mean, and this is kind of kind of rude, but I like to listen to podcasts while I work and I listen to podcasts all the time. I'm a huge podcast junkie. So my seminary classes were in a lot of way, my first podcast that I listened to while I worked, you know, and and I definitely learned something. I definitely gained something. They were great classes. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't the reason why I was there. You know, I was, I was in Israel because I, and I almost didn't go. I, I very, I very strongly considered not going. Um, and I was in Israel really to have my year. And to me, that meant going to the classes that I liked, paying attention to the classes that I felt a connection to and completely ignoring the ones that I didn't. And also I was at Liberty because of the, because of my college arraignment. I did this program in Queens College called Macaulay, which did not, um, it's an, it's an honors program and it doesn't take any um, transfer credits. Mm -hmm. So even if I could have gotten credits, they wouldn't have done anything. Like, who cares? I wouldn't have done anything anyways. So I just did what I needed, like whatever. I took a very lax approach to it. So I was working with this woman and what she would do also is that what Hannah would do is that when someone for the year that I was working with her, if someone approached her asking about a, um, uh, asking about a, a bridal party gown, she would say, listen, I don't do that, but I have a student who does. And she supervised me through that process. Wow. So I did, I think it was three or three. I think it was three. I'm trying to remember. There was the, the black one with the gold trim. And then there was the really ugly purple one. And then there was, it was a disgusting color that the bride wanted. It, it, it looked like vomit. It was a disgusting color. Um, 
and and like the client knew it also the client yeah. was like she wants this color here's the fabric exactly. make a thing do, yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> here's here's the thing do what you want um and I think there was one more that I'm blanking out on now and so I did those under her supervision under Hannah's supervision and so she not only you know, guided me through the, I knew I had the construction down pretty down right. pat at that point. She guided me through the client relationship, which was huge. Yeah. You know, yeah. if what I had never been in a fitting where I was, you know, I had been in a fitting where I was the client, you know, I had had cousins and whoever got married and then you do gown fittings, but I'd never been in a situation where I was running a fitting. Right. And you got to understand also, like at some points in a fitting, the client is standing there essentially half naked, doing nothing else except scrutinizing the way that they look in the mirror. Right. And as any woman listening to this can know, that is a recipe for disaster. disaster. It's And there's a way, there are ways that you can talk to people. There are things that you can say. There are things that you can, that you can guide people to make that situation more comfortable. Mm -hmm. And there were also a lot more things that you can say to make that situation unbearable. Right. And the thing that I learned from Hannah is that we can't really dictate the way that other people feel, but we can present to them all of the facts. And that's what I do all the time with my client work now. A lot of times when I work with custom clients now, um, when I work with private clients and I do, I, I do, I do still do custom gowns now yeah. um, on a, on a, you know, on a much lesser basis and with a totally different system. But the, the thing that I, that I always tell them is that my end goal is for you to be happy. So right. If that means that if, if for you to be happy, that means that you want something that I think is really ugly, I'm going to make you that really ugly thing. And if you ask me my opinion, I'll tell you what I think. I'll tell you what most people would do, but I'll also make sure to emphasize that the only opinion that matters in this room is yours. Right. And that includes, by the way, your three best friends that you bought, your mother who's on FaceTime and your sister who's six time zones away, who's right. busy texting you the whole time. All of that. I like, it's my job to really let the client focus in on their opinions um, and really see what it is that they want and feel great about them. So I did that all year in Israel. Um, and I really got that boot camp training in, in client work and also in how to make a business run because I saw exactly how Hannah did hers. I got back from Israel. This was in 2015. And I started doing the same exact thing out of my parents' house. Um, I put I put the word out that I was doing alterations and that I was doing custom gowns and dresses. I started with my mom's friends. They told their friends. They told their friends. Within a couple of months, I had the entire neighborhood traipsing in and out of my parents' house. Um, I formed a couple of connections with fabric stores actually in Brooklyn, because especially the, the kinds of alterations that I were doing were ones that were really specific to the modest market. Right. So you're talking about like letting down hems, lengthening dresses, adding sleeves, building up tops. Right. And, but what I was doing was that higher level of stuff because I am a couture trained dressmaker, seamstress and pattern maker. I know how to do something that is, you know, the interesting problems. So I would have a lot of times people who would send me pictures. I had like consistent clients who would be like in a dressing room in Nordstrom. And this was kind of just before modest fashion really exploded. Yeah. Um, this was like just before you could really easily find something that you didn't need to layer. And they would be sending me pictures from like dressing rooms in Nordstrom. Okay, I'm considering between these two dresses, which of these can be built up? Exactly. Which of these, you know, which do I need to buy two of them so that we have the exact okay. fabric? Do you think I, um, do you know, I, I also, I, I, had a relationship with some of the brands because I was constantly reaching out to them for fabric Fabrics. that I just knew which brands would be willing to, you know, for an extra 50 bucks, send you the exact fabric and which ones right. you needed to go find and things like that. So what I also did was that I formed a couple of relationships with fabric stores, mostly in Brooklyn, um, because especially girls who are tall or who, um, if you're building something up, a lot of times you're needing to buy fabric um, to build something up or to let something down or all of that. So they let me put my business card 
in the stores so that if they, if they were coming to the fabric store, a lot of times they were coming to the fabric store to look for fabric and then they were going to just go find a seamstress. Right. Um, and it happened because I had gone to the, to, to like, um, actually Katz's fabric. I think they're still there. I think they're on New Utrecht and they, and she would, Mrs. Katz saw me there a lot and I would come with clients. Um, and she said, Oh, you, what do you do? And I explained to her what I do. And she said, give me your card. People are asking all the time for so people who can do this. So that business built up. Um, and I did that while I was also in college. So I had kind of two full-time jobs. I was a full-time college student, which, but I was only required to take like 12 credits. So it was like, it was technically full-time, but it was like three days a week, which right. is not full-time. College full-time um, is, is an ideal situation for life. I wish college full-time was life full-time. Exactly. It so yeah. is. And also, especially me coming from a Basiakov school where I had like a double curriculum and I was right. in, and I need to be like out the door at seven 30 and I was home at like six, seven o'clock. Like I was like, Oh, you want me to be there from nine to noon? Okay. I can manage that. And it's like a block away from my house. Okay. I can do that. Um, like that was, it was whatever. I just, a college schedule was very simple for me. And so I did, I, while I was in college full-time, I was also running this alterations business and it, and it just, and it grew and it grew and it grew until it became apparent. There was a summer where I was, I think I did I forget exactly how many it was. I forget if it was four dresses in six weeks or six dresses in eight weeks that I actually physically sewed myself. Either way, Uh, it's a lot. It was a lot. It was, it was definitely a lot. There was, I remember also there were these two sisters-in-law that I was doing. So they, it was two women who were married to two brothers and those brothers, younger sister was getting married. Okay. And the sisters-in-law were both going to be pregnant. Um, at the wedding, they were both going to be heavily pregnant, like eight, nine months pregnant at the wedding. One of them, it was their sixth kid, seventh kid. I don't know. Like after, after a bunch of kids, um, the other one had been married for around the same amount of time and had, um, recurrent miscarriages. Um, so however many children this other sister-in-law had, that was however many miscarriages the other one had. Um, and they were both going to be pregnant at the same time. The, um, the one who had had the, um, the miscarriages was carrying much smaller Mm -hmm. and it, and they, and thankfully I will say this, they did not come for their fittings at the same time. They were on different schedules. So we did dresses that coordinated, um, but there was, there was like this, it was, there was like an emotional exhaustion level that was happening there because yeah. everyone was like really, and also I think that this was like the farthest along that that sister, that that sister-in-law had the work. Like there was just all of that that was happening. There's so much baggage that comes into it. You know, people think like women's fashion is just a dress, but it's like a whole world. Last it's- thing that I sell is clothes. Exactly. The last thing that I sell exactly. is clothes. Like that's, you're dealing with everything that comes everything. along with that. So there, and it, so it was this emotionally exhausting thing. Um, both, both dresses came out really, really beautiful. Both women felt fantastic. And both of them did end up having healthy babies a couple of weeks after the wedding. Um, and it was, and, and it was, and it was this summer that was just completely overwhelming. And at the end of the wedding in about July of 26, at the end of, you know, once that particular wedding was finished in about July of 2016, I realized that I couldn't do it, that I, I realized that I had a choice at that point. And I remember I was sitting in my, um, in my parents' room facing my mom. And I said, I have two options right now. I can either hire seamstresses. I can either start running what is essentially a sweatshop. I mean, a nice sweatshop with a very nice boss, but a sweatshop nonetheless. Or I need to make some changes or I can't be sewing these dresses right now. Something has to change because I can't keep up with this. And I also wasn't making enough money that it was worth it to be doing it. Like the Mm -hmm. hourly rate was just not making sense. Um, 
And then I, and then in that same conversation with my mom, I had an epiphany when you're at a wedding and, you know, from people make lots of weddings and we mm. make large weddings. There were about 500 people at my wedding. Yeah. And I'm thinking if you're, and that's average, that's very average to yeah. have a 500 yeah. person wedding. Yeah. So if you're thinking about a 500 person wedding at a 500 person wedding, there are maybe 10, 15 women in gowns. Right. That's, and that was where most of my money was coming from, from doing these custom gowns. There are about maybe 15, depending on how big the family is, maybe you're exactly. getting up to 25 women in gowns. And there are 250 women in party dresses. At least. There are 250 women in dresses that they need to get, you know, if you're thinking about a 500 person wedding, about half of them are women, then you're talking about 250 people that also need to be dressed. And then I was also thinking about my own closet. In right. my own closet, I had, I had two long gowns. I had a winter one and a summer one. One of my best friends got married in the summer. One of my best friends got married in the winter. I had those two dresses and then I just reused them. I rewore them. Mm-hmm. And I had about, I want to say like 10, maybe less dresses that I wore to other people's weddings, you know, to weddings that I was not super close to. And it was just this light bulb that went off that said, okay, you're at this wedding. So who do you want to be dressing? 250 people or 10 people, right. obviously 250 people. Um, so that was when I decided to pivot. And that was when I created impact fashion. So I started it as a wholesale only line. I was selling two stores. Mm-hmm. And the way that you do that is that you call up stores. You say, hi, my name is Rifki. I have great dresses. Do you have 10 minutes of your time? Can I have 10 minutes of your time to show them to you? And, you know, you make enough phone calls. You get enough people who agree to meet to you or who don't answer your phone calls. So you show up to their store anyways, carrying a garment bag and say, hi, these are dresses. Can I show them to you? Um, and and I built up, a, and I built up a, a clientele that way of stores. And I did that exclusively. Hold on, let me think. That was in 2016. The first, it took me almost a year to get it fully together. The first collection that I shipped to stores was the following spring. So I spent those like first six months getting, I, I thought that I would be able to launch for fall because I was naive. Um, and then, and I ended up um, doing it for spring. So that must have been in, hold on one second. Spring, I was probably selling in like probably end of 2016 beginning of 2017 like December 16 to January 17 and I was exclusively wholesale until last spring so until um ironically enough January 2020 was when I decided that I wasn't going to sell wholesale anymore which turned out to be a very good decision yes um but not one at all that I could have I mean nobody could have predicted what we're dealing with um so for three years I was exclusively wholesale and that was, and that was going pretty well. It was, it was really growing and it was the kind of thing that I took it one step at a time. So first I, you know, I built up my store clientele. And then once I had that kind of going, I thought, oh, maybe I should be, I had an Instagram account, but I like, I didn't really nurture it in any way. I just kind of had it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't really thinking at all about my direct relationship with customers. I did have a couple of times people who would see my label. I did have a website that was essentially just a portfolio and it was really geared towards wholesale clients. And on that website did have my phone number so that people could call me. And I did have people who saw my label in stores, went to my website, um, and then started calling me and asking if they could buy from me directly which I told them they couldn't because you couldn't at the time. Right. Um, but then what also started happening was around the same time with wholesale, occasionally you'll end up with leftover pieces um, either because you end up making a little bit extra because you think people will reorder and then they don't or because stores change their order and they cancel or because something happens that like I had, I had stores, a lot of the stores that I were selling to, I was selling to, you know, the big boutiques, the big names that everybody knows, but I was also selling to a lot of people who were like running boutiques out of their basement. Right. Um, right. 
and sometimes, and sometimes those businesses become really big and more often than not, they fail. So right. I had a, a couple of times and because the, the gap was, you know, a couple of months between when someone was ordering and when it was actually going to be showing up in their store, sometimes in those interim months, that store would shut down. So I would end up with a couple, not a ton of inventory, but a couple of pieces here and there. Were these wholesale accounts, um, like on consignment or it was no. like they paid you no, shipped they and it was theirs to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. That. Yeah. No, I, I never did anything on, um, that's not true. At the very beginning, I did a couple of consignment agreements. Um, but for the most part, it was where they bought, they purchased it. So, so in that year, before you trans, before you were ready with your collection to wholesale, did you continue doing the custom gowns and stuff? Or did you kind of put like a stop to the, put that thing? on hold? I was finishing up college. Um, what I had also done was that I had taken a, a break from doing any alterations work while I did an internship. Part of the requirement of my scholarship was that I do either a study abroad or an internship. Um, so I interned at this company called Naeem Khan, which is an internationally recognized designer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it was a fantastic experience. I loved that company. Um, I loved working there. I actually considered dropping out of college to take a full-time job there. Yeah. Um, I was this close to doing it actually. And then the person who had offered me the job presented it. They, they needed this position to be filled. It was the perfect job for me. Um, and somebody presented it to Naeem and said, you know, Rebecca's going to, we, we think Rebecca would be great for this slot. And he said, wait, she hasn't graduated yet. And, um, and, and I, and, and they said, yeah, she's going to do, she's going to take a, a year off of college and then do school at night and, and all this. And then like eventually get her BA. Um, and he was, like it was a very family focused company. And he right away was like, absolutely not. She's going right. to, she's get, get your degree. You finish up and then you come um, as a, as a, not out of a, I won't hire someone who doesn't have a degree right. as a, yeah. you're not dropping out of college to take right. this job in my company care. that anyone could do. Right. Out of um, sure. Exactly. So, and I'm, and I'm still in touch with some people there and, um, and it was a fantastic experience. And it also was something that kind of made me realize that I wasn't really sure if I wanted to take a job in a mainstream kind of fashion company. The lifestyle, just because yeah. I knew that I wanted to have a family, um, it doesn't really lend itself to that. Like there were working moms in that company. And I want to say that like of, it's not because of anything that the company does. It's just because of the reality of the, of the job, of what sure. it is that you need to do. And there yeah. were working moms. There were a couple of working moms in that company and it was really, really hard for them. It was yeah. really, really hard for them. And I knew that I would, and I knew that I wanted to eventually have a family and also be working, but I didn't want to make that more hard, like more complicated myself. I mean, jokes on me now, cause I have my own company. So right, like, exactly. easier, <laughs> but at the time, at the time, it just kind of, and also, there was a lot of, there was a lot of smoking. There was a lot of drinking. Um, there was a lot of That's after right. hours activities yeah. that I was not going to be a part of. Yeah. Um, and, and that I could see also how not being a part of that would. And again, we're talking about like the most family friendly version of this. And I could see how not being a part of that was going to hinder my ability to advance. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and it was just kind of a decision that I made that this was not something that that I thought would work for me. And also just, and like, and just very basic stuff. Like a lot, a lot of time fashion shows were on Chavez. I missed the bridal fashion show because it was Saturday at six o'clock in the summer. Yeah, that's right. not happening. Yeah. Taking kind of a break from the alterations um, to the um, upset of a lot of my clients. I still mm -hmm. occasionally will get calls from people who's be like, yeah, my friend mentioned once that you do the thing. And I'd be like, I'm so sorry, please go to this other person in the neighborhood right, who does fantastic stuff. Um, so I'd already kind of, kind of taken a pause from that. And I was finishing up school. 
So I was finishing up school instead of like being full-time in school and then, and then full-time running salterations business. I was full-time in school and then running around to factories and trying to figure out how to get stuff made on a mass scale. Um, so I did that. And then a, a couple of years later, once I had, I had like a little, a couple of extra pieces, a little bit of, you know, a couple of extra pieces that were left over. And, and I thought, you know, I really, I could sell these to people. I could sell these directly to people. And I think that that might be the way to go. Um, the thing that I was thinking about also at that point was a lot of stores were, had started complaining to me that companies were selling directly to consumer, were selling directly online. Um, and they were saying how upsetting it was to them that companies that they had been working with for forever were going, were essentially stealing their customers from right. them. Like, why would they go to the store if they can come to you? Exactly. Um, and also a lot of these companies were not doing so in the most honest way. Mm-hmm. Um, they were undercutting their stores. Yeah. So just for anyone who's not familiar, when let's, let's, I'm using fake numbers now, but let's assume that it cost me $2 to make a dress. And then if it, it cost me $2 to make a dress, so let's say I'll mark it up to the store for let's say $5 and then the store will sell it to you for $10. But that dress that you're paying $10 for in store really only costs $2 to make and you're just paying for the middleman. So if I have my own website and it costs me $2 to make a store, to make a dress, excuse me, I could sell it to you online for let's say $8. I'm making, you know, I'm making three times as much as I would if I'm selling it wholesale, you're paying less and the store is the one that ends up getting screwed over. Right. Um, and a lot of people were doing that. Now I wasn't, it was actually very important to me to not do that, yeah. but people make decisions based on their history. They don't really make decisions based on what you're telling them. So when I would tell a store, I, I will not undercut you. I promise that I will not undercut you. They say, yeah. And so did the last person who, did, right. who undercut me say the same thing. So I couldn't account for other people's experiences with, and I would tell them, listen, I can't speak to your experience with other people. It's not me, but this is, this is, and I can't tell you more than this. I can't tell you more than the fact that I am honest and I will not do this to you. Right. So there was that. So I started hearing from a lot of stores that companies were undercutting them and that they were upset. I was afraid to open my own website for a long time because at the time the 100% of my revenue was coming from the stores. And I thought if I alienate the stores, then I lose my company. Mm-hmm. And for a while, for about a season or two, that did happen. Um, because when I did make the decision that I was going to open up the website charging exactly the same that I was that was charging in stores so charging that same ten dollars in the example before um and that people could order from it takes a long time for something like that to gain traction but it takes three seconds for a store to realize what you're doing and to realize that you're going in that direction so there was definitely a time where my wholesale sales took a dip and my retail sales did not make up for that dip did you Um, stop with wholesale once you did that or no, I did them both together for a little while. Okay. I did them both together for a little while. Uh, and then I realized that there were decisions that there, there are certain decisions that you need to make, like when you're going to release new styles or how much you're going to charge or what your production schedule is going to be, that the considerations for wholesale and retail are completely different. Mm-hmm. So for example, in a wholesale situation, all of the stores make their buying decisions the week after Pesach and the week after Sukkot for the following season. So the week excuse me, the week after Pesach, um, they are making their, they're buying all of their, um, all of their inventory for the Rosh Hashanah Sukkot season. Right. And the week after Sukkot, they're buying all of their inventory for the upcoming Pesach season. So with that, that meant two things. It meant that you needed to have an entire collection ready for one week um, or two weeks or whatever for like that very specific timeline. Yeah. It meant that I never had a Chalmite 
because I was always working on getting that collect. No matter how much I pre-plan, there's always something that's going to go wrong in that, in that last second. And it meant that I was working in this very cyclical way. It meant that I was like, it meant that like of my calendar, there was maybe like three months, not even when I was actually designing. And then, and then I would have to be so focused on selling the collection. So there was that aspect of it, which just for my own life was, it it just wasn't great. And the lack of Holomite was really, I really didn't like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the price wise, I, you know, I would be, my prices would have to be you know, really very high on my retail site because I needed to account for that wholesale markup. Because if I needed to wholesale something, again, if I need to wholesale it for $4, if I'm making it for two and I need to wholesale it for four, then I can't retail it for less than eight or five or whatever, like whatever that number is. Um, When really, if I was selling it, if I was cutting out the store, then I really could be giving my customers a better price. Um, And it was hard for the website to gain traction when my prices were what they were because they were being, it was kind of like a chicken and egg problem. Mm -hmm. If, If the prices were what they were, then it would be a little bit more difficult for it to gain traction. I couldn't bring the prices down until it gained traction because by doing that, I'm cutting out the wholesale and and all of that was happening for about a year. Wow. And then in January of 2020, I decided that was my last collection that I was going to wholesale. I was in the process of wholesaling, um, what was the spring 2020 collection. I was finishing up, uh, the spring 2020 collection. Um, I finished it up at the beginning of January, 2020, got in all of those orders, put those into the factory in the middle of January, shipped them the, um, second week in February. Um, my, second or third week in February, my grandfather passed away a week later on February 29th in 2020. Um, and then by March, and then the Shiva went on for a week. They got up on Sunday. Um, Purim was on Tuesday by the following Sunday, my husband and I were in quarantine, like literally in the space of a month, literally everything changed. Yeah. Wow. And during that time. So then full, first of all, then I had like a real freak out because now I actually launched the tulip dress from quarantine. All of the pictures you see of the tulip dress happened inside my apartment because two people in my husband's office had tested positive. This was the time when everyone was all, let's flatten the curve. And if we just stay home, then this will be gone in a month. And it's like, oh, great. Okay. So that's what we're going to do. And that's what we did. And, and I did that from inside my apartment and, and that's, and that's how all of that, um, went down. So it was then, you know, I know that you like to talk about, you know, pivots and changes. Yeah that was the biggest pivot, the absolute biggest pivot, because I went from this, you know, wholly wholesale focused to a completely retail focused during a pandemic with an event-based company, because I was still making those party dresses when events were getting canceled left and right during, by the way, mind you, the busiest season of the year. So all of that was happening, just started brainstorming. Okay. If my, my purpose in life right now is not to sell dresses because nobody needs dresses. Right. We're all at home in our pajamas. So if nobody needs dresses, what do they need from me? What, what do people need from me? What can I provide to people? So, and at the beginning, it was really just like throwing spaghetti at a wall and seeing what sticks because in the <laughs> beginning it was stuff like, okay, people at home, all their kids are home. They're probably driving them, them crazy. Nobody wants to cook. I certainly don't want to cook. We need to give away pizza suppers because people need, cause I want pizza. Everyone wants pizza. Who doesn't like pizza? So I would do these stupid, these like, okay, so let's play a game. And it was like, and I, and I gave a, a caption prompt. I really should do this game again. I haven't done it since it's a good game. Um, I did a caption prompt that was like, um, show me, uh, it was like, I spy something slippery. And then, and then people would, would on their, would post you know, with the, with the hashtag and tag me and post the thing. And then, um, 
the fun the fun joke around the ones that I don't think that he would do this now because as my platform has grown he's gotten a little bit shyer but my husband picked the winner so I got okay. him on camera yeah and I picked I don't think I've I, ever seen him on camera he shows up occasionally oh, he wow. shows up very occasionally he's incredibly camera shy um I, I love him very much and he's perfectly fine to have me be in the limelight and him be supporting me from from the other from, side from the other side of the camera um so yeah, so this was, wow, yeah, this was like about a year ago. So we did these contests and, and I would video him looking through the submissions and, and he would pick a winner, whichever one he yeah. thought was, what was great was that as like for the people that were submitting consistently and who were watching the, um, the videos of him pick the winner, people really got to a feel for his sense of humor and for what he found. Like people, people yeah. figured out how to game the how system. Win. <laughs> yeah. Um, sure. And then, and then I sent them and then I asked them and then, and then I just said, okay, what's your, what's your favorite local pizza place? And I sent over a pie and fries for supper the next day. And so those were the kinds of that, that was the way that I was thinking. And I had, um, and it was, and it was definitely very difficult, um, because I wasn't making a lot of sales, um, shortly after Pesach that year, that year, 2020, who could, I mean, it will for forever be that year. Um, I, um, I also, um, I, I did, you know, this the sale that was also, you know, to help get masks to people who needed it. And we did, um, we did that. I also really doubled down on my podcast yeah. um, because like, I think I did more interviews during that time, like concentrate. I was basically doing interviews back to back to back and I had them banked for months in advance because people yeah. were available. People who previously had such busy schedules were not only home with open schedules, they were so excited to have adult conversation sure. to talk to someone who For wasn't sure. related to them. And so I was doing them at all these weird hours, usually late at night after kids were asleep. And I, and I did a ton of podcast interviews and that was a huge pivot. Um, and then it was also because I had kind of decided on my own in January of 2020 that I was going to stop wholesaling. I didn't, um, like, I didn't really make an announcement. I didn't like send an email to my stores and say, by the way, have a nice life like yeah, I just no, I just kind of left it I just kind of left it and as it became clearer and clearer that the stores were doing worse and worse and worse just because of the realities of the situation that they couldn't be open um I mean the fact that I managed to ship out my wholesale line before the world shut down which I really only did because my grandfather was sick and I knew that and I and we knew what was happening and I just needed to get it out as soon as yeah. I could um that you know, all of that really made a difference. And all these stores were starting to throw up websites and like the whole landscape changed, you know, in, in a week. So, so I stopped doing it. So then I, and as I was doing that, and as I was really focusing on what people needed from me, rather than what I needed from people, that was when things really started taking off. Um, and over the last year, it's, um, it's been a, a crazy ride. Was that um, like a very freeing moment for you when you stopped wholesaling and you realized like, okay, I'm just going to design what I feel is important or what I, you know, what I don't have to get anyone's approval. You don't have to show at a, at a, however they show wholesale things, you know, you don't have to get <laughs> right. chosen. It was more like, now I'm going to make what I want and what I think my client wants. And was that like a, a freeing experience? I wouldn't use the word freeing. It was definitely it was definitely eye-opening because what I also noticed is that as, so I, so I had this Instagram account while I was exclusively wholesaling and people were somewhat finding me through it. Um, 
And what I was hearing constantly, and also like when I would meet people on the street and all of that, people would want, would ask me questions like, why is everything in a store always black? Why is it always black? Why do I walk to a store and it's always black? I'd love to have color. And the stores were telling me things like, listen, I know that I, like, I know that if I bring in a black dress, I'll sell it 20 times. If I bring in a blue dress, there'll be three people who like blue. There'll be another two people who like purple. Like it just doesn't like. It's and then big. there'll be the people who are saying, does this come in black? Exactly. Exactly. So what I did realize that there was a somewhat of a disconnect between what the stores were willing to risk and what the people were willing what the people really wanted to Money. see at the same time I saw the exact same disconnect between on the sizing front of it um I, I started yeah. yeah I started carrying sizes two through 24 because one of my stores asked for it started originally were you were you always size inclusive or were you doing more like the standard so I was I would not call I would not call my first collection inclusive by my standards today. Um, I was definitely more inclusive than other modest brands. Yeah. Um, my first collection was two through sixteen, okay. and I did that. Here was my 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 thought process on that was that at the time, I wore an eight. Most of the women in my family wore around like a twelve fourteen, and I was like, okay, so if you know, most of the women in my family are around the 12, 14. If I go up to 16, then great. I cover all the we people. Everybody, like, right. and, and also in that first collection, especially I'm like, there's so much that goes into building a company that like mm -hmm. literally everything from filing the LLC to making the logo that in a lot of ways, like that first collection was not really great. And not only because I've become more experienced in like realizing what people want, but also just because there was so much more on my plate, right. you know, I couldn't okay. really focus exclusively on designing. And so what that meant was that with that collection, I, you know, I, I it was two through 16. And then the next season I did two through 18. I don't know why I just did. Um, I just felt like adding 18. What, what I, oh, what I did was, was that I added it as an option. I think that there was kind of just a, um, like a, like a social experiment aspect to it. I was like, I wonder if I do an option, how many stores will take me up on it? And a couple right. did. Um, also myself, I've never been super, super skinny and I could never shop in modest stores. So for me, it was like, like even me at my, when I started the, the line, I was at my smallest at around the size eight. And even at that size, I was walking into stores and I was trying on extra larges, but also by that point in my life, I was around 20 years old and I had been like around the 10, 12, most of my life. And I didn't even really bother walking into that stores. Cause if you're a true 10, 12 and you're walking into a, you know, a modest store in most from neighborhoods, you are wasting your time. So I just didn't do it. And you just can't see me, but I am like, yeah, exactly. Like most like, definitely preach. Yeah. I'm with you a hundred. And it, so at that point I wasn't even shopping at that store at, right. at those stores because and also I was making my own clothes. So it's different, but either way, I just wasn't really thinking about, I, I had, I did have definitely much more of a sensitivity towards it. Why do you and think my that is, why do you think that these modest brands don't, you know, other than your brand and a couple of, you know, now I feel like it's, it's grown a little bit more, but why is that? Why is someone who's wearing an eight, 10, or even a 12, not able to fit into an extra larger and double XL in these, in these brands. So there's two issues here and I have a couple of theories and there's no way to really prove this. There's two issues. There is the availability, the fact that a lot of brands will stop at a size 12 or 14 and they just won't offer anything that they call a size 16. And then there's the fact that a lot of these brands tend to run very small. Um, you mentioned that there are a handful of them. I am okay, I'm pretty consistently tagged when people are like, who's size inclusive? So the yeah. four names that generally come up are myself, um, Mimu Maxi, 
Um, and Estes Online for casual, they go up to around a size 1820. Uh, and Drama, which is an exclusively plus brand. The other thing I wanted to ask you was about like with sizing, which I guess kind of wraps into all of this is like, why, why can you be, or why can I be a six in one brand and barely fit into a 14 in another? You know? Okay. So it's, it's all a related issue. Yeah. The underlying issue is that women's sizing is not standardized. It just isn't. This is different from men's sizing, which while it can run different between brands is somewhat standardized. And I'll explain yeah. to you what I mean. We have not all agreed what a size eight is. We have not all agreed and said, if you want to call something a size eight, that means that the bust is 30 is 39 inches. The waist is 33 inches. The hip is 41 inches. We haven't done that. Mm -hmm. We have to a certain extent done that in men's sizing. When you think about um, men's pants, like a 32 pant generally will have a 32 inch waist. Right. Um, generally there, there is some leeway there. Uh, we have done this with bra sizing. Yes. If you think about it, your bra size is always your bra size. And that is because once you get properly fitted, yes. but the, the, that is because the number in a bra size is an inch measurement. Right. And then the letter there to get a bra size, there's two measurements that you take. You take the band measurement, which is underneath your boobs. And then you, can I say boobs? Sure. Okay. Um, there's a, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm comfortable with boobs. Just putting that out. Of, it's your show. Um, there's a band measurement that goes underneath your boobs. And then there is a cup measurement that goes across your nipples and through the fullest part of your boob. And the difference between those measurements will be a couple of inches. So if the difference between those measurements is one inch, you're an A cup. If it's two inches, you're a B cup. If it's Ooh, look inches, at that. You're a C cup and so on and so forth. A lot of times if I'm um, helping customers figure out their size and they're too lazy to measurement, I'll ask them for the bra size because that will <laughs> give me their bust measurement. And then with a couple of questions, I can usually figure it out from oh. there. So <laughs> women's, women's dress sizing or really women's sizing on anything aside from a bra is, is not standardized to any metric at all. So what that means is that when a company creates a size chart, they're making it up. They're fully making it up. They, they, and they make it up based on the people that they want to dress. So if you want to be inclusive, then you make your size eight, what we would kind of consider a true eight, which is generally around a 33 inch waist, but that's not really, I can't even give you a, a measurement that like, right. this is what an eight is because there is no, yes. there is no one who's gone. This is what an eight is. And then you grade up and down from there. A lot of modest companies are started by people with little to no technical fashion experience. Right. Um, a lot of modest companies are started by people who just like clothes, who just like fashion and who start a line. Yeah. which is great if that's by all means, that's fantastic. But also there are consequences to that. And the consequence to that is that when you're dealing with someone who has basically no technical knowledge on how to make clothes or how to fit clothes, then their clothes are not going to be made well and they're not going to fit. Um, like it doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure that part out. <laughs> so, so that, you know, that's, that's not really surprising that that happened. Um, so there's, so that there's that. And additionally, and I, there's no really kind way to say this from society is really fat phobic uh, to an extreme level. Um, and we, and there is a lot of pressure in our society to be, a, to be below a certain size. And for everyone, that measure is different. You know, for some people it's a 12, for some people it's an eight, for some people, if you're not a double zero, then you're obese. And, yeah. and, and, and that's, and that's something that we need to address at a societal level. And if you are dressing, if you choose to only dress a certain type of person, 
then you will be excluding a different type of person. Right. If you choose, there are, there are fashion designers and there are stores who say that they don't want big people wearing their clothes. Right. They don't want that because then if a big person is wearing the, the clothes, then the small person won't want to wear it, which by the way, is ridiculous. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I have been carrying sizes two through 24 now for about uh, two years at this point ever in my life has it happened that a small person someone who wears a size two has messaged me or has reached out to me and let me tell you something occasionally you'll get some crazy like it's not like people don't share their opinions with yeah. me they share their opinions with me <laughs> never has it happened in all of the crazy opinions that get shared with me that someone who wears i don't know like a two four says i would love your clothes but i don't buy them because you you offer them at a 24 and and i don't want to be seen in the, like it's just it's ridiculous. And frankly, if you do feel that way, don't wear my stuff. I don't want you in it. That's the kind of person that I don't want in my clothes. Um, when I first started offering sizes two through 24, because Lara Shulman from Pick Orchid asked me, um, and then what, what happened was, was that she had a dress, uh, my peplum dress actually, that's available now on the site, um, that I originally did in this gorgeous floral print and she loved it and it did really well for her. And she called me mm -hmm. up and wanted to know if she could reorder it. I said, sure, no problem. It was a limited fabric. So I, um, so I told her, I was like, I just need to measure how much of it I have left. And then I'll let you know how many you could order. I measure the fabric. I tell her she can have however many pieces. And she says, I could do whatever size I want. It's like, yeah, whatever size you want. What do you, what sizes do you want? And she goes, okay, I'll take 16, 18, 20, 22, 24. So I said, okay. Oh. And I went a little quiet at the time. I only went up to a size 18. And I said, do you have people who need those sizes who need? And she said, and she said, of course I do. So of course, she said, I have, not only do I have people, I have specific customers in mind that when this comes in, I'm going to call them right. and I'm, and I'm going to tell them that this is in, I guarantee you it'll be gone in two weeks. All of these sizes will be gone in two weeks. So I made the, at the time I actually charged her extra because there was extra patterning costs to make those sizes that I wasn't offering yeah. at the time. Um, I charged, I charged her extra and then I, um, and I, and I made her the dresses and I delivered them and I called her up two weeks later. By the way, whatever happened to those pieces, 16, 18, 20, 22, 24. And she's like, oh, those, they were gone in two days. Yeah. They were gone. And that was when the light bulb went off. And I, and I, and I started talking to her and I said, and I was like, has, is nobody dressing these people? She said, no, nobody's doing it. She said, she said, I always have to do custom or I always have to get more fabric and I have to reorganize it for them or whatever. She's like, nobody is dressing these women. And that was when I started offering two through 24 wholesale. When I told stores that I did sizes two through 24, a couple of things happened. A lot of people assume that I was a plus size only brand, right? Just because if you were carrying those sizes and you were a plus size only brand, right, right, right. and if you were a plus size only brand, that generally meant that you do tent dresses and like these big moo moo frou frou things, which if you like that, by all means, go for it. Personally, I'm not the biggest fan. Also, it shouldn't be your only option. Right. If that's, there's a big difference between choosing to wear something big and oversized and having something big and oversized be literally the only thing that the can get, that can get on your body. That's right. number one. So I had, I had that assumption that happened. I also had a couple of people who, when I told them, you know, I carry sizes two through 24, the stores had either one of two reactions. It was either, oh my goodness, that's fantastic. I'm so excited. I'll finally have something to, to give these women that walk into my store. Or it was, those people don't shop by me. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, 
That's why. Yeah, exactly. When, by the way, the entire time, once I started publicizing that I do, and I, and I told the stores when they were taking those bigger sizes, I said, I need one bit of his from you. I need one thing from you. You're putting in a regular ad in your, in your local paper. Anyways, you're doing that weekly ad. Anyways, I need you to write on that ad, the five magic words now carrying plus size simple wear. Those are your five magic words. Yeah. Once you do that, I guarantee you they will sell. And the people who listen to me, it did. Right. Because there, because people were, because people really needed it. Um, and as I became, it became more and more apparent that there was need for it in the market and that the stores were not willing to meet it um, on a large enough level to make it worth it. Um, and so I, and so I cut the stores out. I cut the stores out. I stopped selling to them. I started going directly to people. And as far as I know, and if, and if I am incorrect in this, please reach out to me and please tell me this because I would love to publicize the incorrectness of this. As far as I know, I am the only um, modest line that does fitted clothes in sizes two through 24. Um, it's only the only one I've ever found or seen. Anyway. And I would, and I would love to be proven wrong on this. And not, um, not just fitted, but um, beautifully constructed on par with many of the, of the things you find in like a Neiman Marcus or, or a Nordstrom. They're really beautifully beautiful quality and beautifully designed. Thank you. That's, well, I am a designer. You know, that's, that, that to me also, because here's the thing. A lot of people are like, well, I don't know how to design for plus sizes, but then you don't know how to design them. You're just not very good at it. (laughs) You're just not very good at it. That's fine. And listen, people are allowed to be not very good at it. There are plenty of people who have businesses that run on toothpicks and by all means, gay gives into height. Toothpicks deserve to be dressed also. Right. I'm, I'm just not so worried about them. And also, you know, we were talking about a lot of modest brands that are started by people who don't have the experience. I really feel a responsibility. I am, and and I know that this is not, like, I know that there are people who are in the modest market who have gone to fashion school. I do believe that I am the one with the most experience on a technical level. I understand how to design, construct, and engineer a garment so that it actually fits people. And it's and, really evident in your, in your line. Thank you. You really see that. Thank you. So for me, I feel like because I have that knowledge, because I have that ability to create something that is really going to work for you as a size 24, as a size two and as a size 12, I almost feel a responsibility that I need to meet that need because there have been times when there have been other brands who have told me things like, yeah, I've tried to make my line inclusive and nobody buys it. And here's the thing. If you're only dressing someone who's very small, then you have a lot of leeway. You know, in general, society will say that things look good on small people, whether or not they actually do. And so societally, you have leeway there. You can decide that something is is better or worse. And you don't have to put as much thought into it because it's just... Right, because, because a small person will always... A small person default position is looking good society will say that a small person defaults to good and that a larger person defaults to bad so the bigger you get the less leeway you have so when you're dealing with someone who's my size you know i'm i wear a size 12 now and a lot of brands even when you get up to my size and i'm not a plus size you are you have that less leeway and if Mm -hmm. something is not made right it's not going to lay right on me and it's just not going to look great so then, you know, when you get, when you take that 12 and then you, and then you take that same shape, that's already an okay shape. It's not a great shape, but it's an okay shape. And it works okay on a two. It works okay on a four works. Okay. on a six, by the time you get to an eight, it's like, nah. 
by the time you you know an a10 it's like okay it's it's not the best piece of clothing she right. owns, but it works by the time you get to a 12 14 it's like ah, something mm-hmm. here feels off by the time you get to like even a 16 18 it's just bad it yeah. just doesn't work because if you just take that same poorly constructed garment and you just make it bigger, bigger right? it's not gonna work and newsflash women who wear size 16 18 2022 20, they still want to look good they yeah. still deserve to feel good they still That's deserve true. all of those beautiful things and they're not stupid like they know that when you're that what you're showing them it's not great <laughs> you know and and personally the thing that i think that everyone deserves more than anything else is options you deserve to have just as many options as someone who is smaller now i understand the technical problems that go into to stocking as many sizes as i do right. Trust me, I know them better than anybody possibly could. But I also think it's my responsibility. I think that it's, I, I do view it as my responsibility to really, to really dress these women. And also I'm very conscious to not say that I carry all sizes because I don't. Right. There are women who are larger than a size 24. And you know what? They deserve great clothes too. Mm-hmm. And they don't deserve great clothes when they lose 20 pounds. They deserve great clothes exactly as they are right now. Um, and, that's, and that's something that I take quite seriously. It's such, it's such a pleasure to hear someone talk so, so eloquently and clearly about such an important issue because we're women and we need to support women and none of those things matter. And you have such a confidence about you. You have such a strong voice. And I'm wondering, is that something that you've, you know, you mentioned a little bit earlier about your podcast. And I am personally a huge fan, not only because I was a guest, but long before that, I listened. A fantastic to- guest, by the way. Thank you. I think I've listened to every single one as of today. Um, but did you always have that strong self-confidence that led you to decide to start a podcast and to branch out aside from, you know, conquering your fashion brand and being this strong advocate for women of all sizes and making sure that they are taken care of in the way that women deserve to be taken care of. Did you always have that strong self-confidence about you? Um, I think that, you know, this is kind of a nature nurture question. It's definitely something that I am to a certain extent, just born with. Um, I also did learn from an early age that other people's opinions are generally trash and should be ignored. Um, And so that helped also because like I I was bullied pretty intensely as a kid through elementary school. And I spoke about this extensively with uh, Barry Mitzman on her Woman of Valor podcast. And the thing, you know, to to do that really quickly was just that um, when I was in about like, first graders. So kids would make fun of me for being smart and they would also make, and they, and by doing so they would make fun of me for being smart and they would also call me stupid. And so just as a kid, I was like, well, both of those things can't be true. (laughs) Right. So, so you're obviously just a moron and I'm going to ignore you. Now this attitude did not get me a lot of friends and I don't necessarily like, don't take social skills classes from me. (laughs) Um, This is not the way that I would recommend going about this. But to me, it was just very obvious that these other kids were just idiots and like, and, 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 and then I internalized this idea that, you know, other people's opinions are generally trash. Now that gets me into trouble a lot um, because other people's opinions are not always trash. Sometimes you should listen to other people's opinions. Right, um, right. And I'm definitely someone uh, who preferred to do the group projects alone. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> but I can't play well with others when needed. But either way, I do think that, um, I, I do think that listening to your own voice is a skill. Um, and it is one that came somewhat naturally to me 
you know, both from circumstance and just personality wise. I also think that confidence is not, confidence is not feeling great about yourself all the time. I do not feel great about myself all the time. Um, Not, I want to say that like, probably, I don't know, like maybe like 60% of the time I feel fantastic about myself and probably a good like 20% of the time I'm pretty neutral about it. Um, And then the other 10%, I feel pretty trash about myself. And I definitely have those days. But I think that for me, confidence is in recognizing that just because you're having a bad day doesn't like, that's not a, that's not a permanent state of being. Right. That's something that does that, that you, that you work through, you know, that's something that you can come out the other side of. Um, and also I surround myself with a lot of people who are freaking awesome in a lot of different ways. Um, and who support me in a lot of different ways that, you know, I'm someone who is, I, I get, I get up in my head a lot, very much. I am, I am an overthinker to like to gold star standards. Um, <laughs> if you're gonna I, do an, it, you might as well. Exact, right? Oh, oh, I go all out on everything. I am an overthinker. Um, I tend to catastrophize, which yeah. is, you know, I, you know, if if I stub my toe, it means that my, my that my whole foot is gonna be amputated. Like, that. and and I have people around me, like my husband, like my mom, who are just like, yeah, that's not gonna happen. So just right. stop. That's ridiculous. Um, and and that definitely helps um, as well you know, wrap up and put a nice little bow on our whole, on our whole incredible conversation. Has there been a time in your, in your career, in your, you know, creating your business, transitioning to a podcast, running them both at the same time, very well, I might say, um, has there been a time that either self-imposed or you felt, you know, someone was kind of putting you into a box and saying, you know, you had to kind of overcome this idea of being just, you're just a fashion designer. So you can't be also a podcaster. You're just a, you know, seamstress. You're just good at alterations. You're just any of those things. Was there ever a time that either, you know, from inside you, or you felt that someone was putting that on you where you felt like you had to overcome that? I have dealt with a lot of people's opinions of me for a very long time. What I do is not really a typical thing for people to do um it's becoming more and more accepted but when I certainly when I started it it was like people just kind of saw it as a weird hobby um you know you you mentioned the podcast and just the I started the podcast because I guested on a bunch of friends podcasts and I really liked it and I was like I want to talk to people and I want to call it work so that's pretty much exactly what I did and um and the be impactful podcast is a is an extension of impact fashion in that with the work that I do with my clothes, I want, I want to just make everyone feel worthy of the space that they're taking up. Yeah. And the, one of the ways that you do that is by listening to people, you know, by, by hearing their stories and by, and by listening to what they have to say. And what's so interesting to me is that one of the most common feedbacks that I get on my podcast, which you might not believe after listening to me talk now for the last hour or so, um, is that I actually talk very little in my podcast. Yeah. Um, when I am when I am hosting, I I ask I ask the questions and I really let the guests go. And a lot of people say that that really that that's one of the things that they like the most because it really allows you to hear what the guest has to say. Um, and for me, you know, when it comes to when it comes to what other people think you should be doing, um, and when it comes to 
what other people, you know, the boxes that other people put you in. I think that there comes a point where you just need to decide that you want to do what's, what makes you happy. You know, you want to do what works for you. Um, And when you make that decision, then a lot of other things become clear because it's like, okay, well, what, you know, like, for example, in my switching from wholesale to retail, I made the decision that I didn't want to be the kind of person that was always going to need to work on Columbine. I didn't want, I, I made that decision. I mm-hmm. wanted something that could run better without me. And that meant retail. Um, things like that. I think that also when you are a woman in business, particularly in the from space, there are a lot of assumptions that are made that it'll stay a home-based business, that it'll always be something that'll be secondary to you know, to whatever else is that is going on in your life, that you'll somehow manage to run a business and also have a beautifully tablescape Shabbos table and also make homemade suppers every night. And, you know, and also your house will always be spotless and that you'll be some kind of superwoman because those are the only situations under which you can be a businesswoman. Exactly. Which is, I mean, that sounds exhausting. And like, I'm exhausted <laughs> enough as it is. And we use paper plates all and the not time. Not at all enjoyable. And not exactly, and not at all enjoyable. Um, So I think that really finding, and also it goes back to a lot of the people, you know, I told my husband when we were dating and I told every single guy that I, you know, when I was dating this, that I was, and I did this very early on because I wanted to like, like, please don't waste my time if you're not interested in this. Literally um, to separate the boys from the men. And I said very early on, probably on like second or third dates, that was, if you're looking for someone who's going to like be home with lipstick on and supper ready every single night, you are talking to the wrong girl. I'm just not going to do it. That's not going to be me. That was never going to be me. Um, and, and I said, and if, I, and if I did try to do that, I would be miserable. Right. It just like, that's not good for anybody. Um, and there were plenty of guys that broke up with me after I told them that <laughs> and good for them. If yeah. that's what you need, by all means, if you need a housekeeper more than you need a partner, great marry your housekeeper. Um, and that's not to say that anyone who's a stay at home mom is, is less than in any way. I don't think, I don't think that at all. If you're making the decision to do that, that's fantastic. It's not the decision that I could make for myself. I knew that it was not something that would work for me. Um, it's a decision that my mom made. My mom stayed home when we were little for forever. And, and in a lot of ways, I don't, it's funny because she, you know, she would be telling me different things, whatever. And I'd be like, Oh, that sounds so terrible and she's like no that's not terrible that's exactly what I wanted to be doing yeah. I was like right okay yeah that's exactly what you wanted to be doing okay great and 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 there was that um so I told that to my husband by the way he's like he's like well yeah you can hire a cleaning lady yeah you, like you don't need to that's can't like, hire that's a wife <laughs> right he's I mean you could but won't but we won't go there um <laughs> Maybe next time. <laughs> that, that, that's a different, that's a different kind of show. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like those kinds of things don't, you know, if it, it, it goes back, I think, to listening to your own voice and listening to what it is that you want to be getting out of. Yeah. That's, um, that's really places. It's really incredible. Rifki, there's so many more things that I want to talk to you about. And I feel like um, there's just, you know, you touched on a couple of things and hinted and, and I just feel like there's, there's so many incredible things to uh, to delve into, but this has been a really, really incredible conversation. And I, I just want to thank you so much for coming on and being my inaugural guest and for being a part of this and sharing your strength and your confidence and your warmth and, and your care. You know, you can tell 
just by listening to you and how passionate you are about everything you're doing, how much you truly care about it and care about women and women feeling good about themselves and all of those, all of the, what comes along with that. And it's, it's a really hard space to be in sometimes to be a from woman trying to dress modestly and still, you know, be the right in quotes size and all of those things. And just, you know, it just, it feels like a warm hug. So well, thank you. This was really fun. Thank you for having me. Please um, just tell everyone where they can find you, where they can follow you, find your clothes and your podcast. Sure. So if you are an Instagram person, then I am at impact.fashion.nyc. Those three words or the last one's an acronym, whatever, um, uh, are pretty much where you can find me all over. So my website is impactfashionnyc.com. There you can see my collection, the clothes that I design pretty much at any point if you're reaching out to the company. So there's like a chat box on the site or a contact page, or if you send a DM on Instagram, you'll be talking to me directly. Um, and I really love nothing more than talking to lovely people. So please do reach out. Um, and my podcast is called Be Impactful. You can listen to it on all the podcast listening places. Just search for Be Impactful. And it's about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I've been doing it for over, oh, coming up like a year and a half now at this point. There's a ton of episodes um, with a lot of um, women, some who you have heard of, some who you probably haven't, um, doing fantastic work in all different areas. And um, there are also a bunch of solo episodes that um, I generally do around product launches or when I feel like I have a burning desire of something to say. And um, those really go, you know, really deep dive into the process of creating specific pieces from the collection. So it's called Be Impactful. Um, the cover is black and gold with a big speech bubble. And you can search for it on any of your podcast listening places. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much, Rifki, for coming on. Uh, this was just an absolute pleasure. This was awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of A Piece of Me. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Seriously, it'll make me do a happy dance. Join me again next time as we continue to share more and more pieces of us. I'm Aviva Breda, and this is a piece of me.